Berserker Cast episode number two Ghost in the Machine Review. Golden Spiral Media presents Berserker Cast, a podcast dedicated to falling skies on TNT. Each week we discuss the action and drama that unfolds as Tom Mason, Captain Weaver, the Berserkers, and the rest of the Second Mass fight to win back the planet from the alien overlords. Call in your thoughts about each episode at 304-837-2278 or email feedback at goldenspiralmedia.com. And now, Berserker Cast. Welcome back to Berserker Cast. I am delighted that you have joined us today. I am Daryl. And I'm Emily. Daryl, it's good to be here. It is. I'm doing well. Yeah. How are you? I'm excited. You know, <laughs> okay. it's it's great to have Falling Skies back on the air. It's great to have a great friend to talk about it with. It's great to have Absolutely. a nice audience joining us for the live show on a Tuesday night. There's nothing in the world to complain about. It's it's good. Absolutely not. The sun is shining here in Minnesota, and I am very happy to talk about this episode, I gotta say. Yeah, the sun is shining here in Oklahoma City as well, although I have a blanket over my window <laughs> right now because I get glare with this particular setup I have for this podcast. I get glare if uh, this time of day if I don't have the window. Even though I have blinds, it still kind of comes through, so I have a blanket yeah. over the blinds right now. The things I do to make a good podcast. That blasted sun I just know. keeps coming. <laughs> My life would be so much better if I never had to see the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you sound like my coworker. Oh. <laughs> he 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 actually questioned why I would want to go to Hawaii. He says it's always sunny there. <laughs> and I said, "Yes, that is why people go to Hawaii." <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And there's this whole thing about Lost that's going on. Oh yeah, that yeah, thing too. That thing too. Lost. I actually do love the sun. I I get out in it more 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 this year than I have in a, the last several years. I make it a point every day to go out and enjoy it a little bit. Well, let's get into the live conversation here, a live show. Those who have been joining us for the live show have been very patient as we've worked through some video issues and chat room issues. And thank you again. We've said it to you live, but I want to make it a point to say it on the recording as well. Um, but we have a lot to talk about here, Emily. Let's get uh, right into it with our episode discussion. And I don't have um, really cool sound bites. I probably need to gather those up for, for future purposes, but I haven't gathered any extra sound bites for our podcast. But let's talk about. Yeah, there you go. Let's talk about Ghost in the Machine, season four, episode one, which aired on Sunday. June 22nd, 2014. It was directed by your buddy, your pal, your knight in shining armor, your <laughs> man who can do no wrong, Mr. He Greg can't. Beeman. Greg Beeman. He, I think he's, I think he's directed all of the premieres now that I think about it. Don't quote me on it, but I mean, he's directed a lot of episodes, so very important to this show. Yeah, he is. Yeah. They released a video today, uh, at least via YouTube, or excuse me, Facebook, probably on Twitter as well, that was kind of a two-minute behind the scenes of some of the things in this video, and it showed Beeman, you know, directing and doing some things. They showed some of these storyboards yeah. and some of the, yeah. the way special effects were put in afterwards. I mean, where they didn't show the special effects. You, you saw the scenes without special effects is what I'm trying to say. It was cool. Did yeah. you see that? 
I did not. I will have to go back and watch that. He posted those storyboards on his blog too. So I did end up seeing those. Okay. Well, I shared it over on the Golden Spiral Media Facebook page, which of course is facebook.com slash Golden Spiral Media. So you guys can go check it out over there. Uh, The episode was written by David Eck. And you have a note on here taking over from Remy. Yep. This is uh, the new showrunner. So Remy Abushan was one of the showrunners from season two to season three and uh, left at the end of last season to pursue personal ventures. So this is uh, David Icke's first episode with Falling Skies. And I think he did a bang up job. He jumped in full force and really, really like took us back to the heart of a lot of these fights that they're having. Remy was one of them that was at Comic-Con last year that I got to speak with. In fact, he, they went two by two at the tables and he was paired with Greg Beeman when they came to our table. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. And we had a couple of guest actors in this episode. Um, At least one of them we expect to be around the entire season. Not sure about the other one. Tell us about them. Uh, Trevor, Trevor, Etienne, I think is how you say it, is the Digan Botha, who we met at the end. He introduced himself to Hal and Tector. I think he's at least around for the first handful of episodes. But the reason I put him in there was because he was in Pirates of the Caribbean. He was one of the pirates. <laughs> and then uh, Scarlet Byrne, who was Pansy Parkinson in the Harry Potter movies, is now is portraying Lexi. So two notable. I think there were quite a few. Well. A lot of extras. I don't think there was anyone else that really stood out to me. How about you? Um, I don't think so. The other female we had with Anne was Denny, and Denny's not new. Mm-hmm. I, the first time I watched nope. it, I'm like, "Who is she?" And then I looked I her up. And I'm like, "Oh, that's Denny, of course." I, she's yeah. not new, so she's grown up a little bit. The actress has, so she looks older. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into the episode. Before we could do though, I want to share a message that we got in from Mark. That is directed to you. Here it is. I want to thank you, Emily, personally. It was in the very last live show for the Revolution podcast that you sent me a message saying, Mark, uh, have you watched Falling Skies? Maybe you should start watching it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And that was it. So I, I checked it out and found season one. I watched season one, absolutely loved it. Uh, went about getting my hands on season two and three. And uh, it wasn't till I was watching season two that you guys announced that you were putting out a podcast for it. Uh, at that point, I, I really binge watched uh, season uh, two and three and absolutely love, loved the show. So there you go, Emily. Well, you know, I can be persuasive when I need to be. <laughs> we got a, a similar sentiment in from Barb. She didn't thank you personally, but she mentioned how she had not been a viewer of Falling Skies, got into the show because she learned that we were doing a podcast about it and was now in love with the show. Couldn't believe that she had been missing out on this fantastic show all this time. Right? And she also mentioned the... The, the the bad side of this, you get used to binging and getting to watch those episodes oh, at know. your convenience, and now you got to wait a week at a time. <sighs> Man, that is exactly how I was with the Americans. I think I said that last week, but yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, the good thing is that you can keep going back and watching them then. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, Barb also said that she thought the episode tie, the episode title, which was Ghost in the Machine, might be a tie-in to British philosopher Gilbert Ryle 
and his thoughts on mind and body dualism. And she thought Mm -hmm. that she wasn't probably the best person to comment on that, but perhaps Emily would be. And uh, so there you are, Emily. You haven't, I just threw this in there at the last minute. I don't even know if you've (laughs) seen that note yet. (laughs) No, I had not. You know, I don't even know who Gilbert Ryle is. Okay. I might if I looked him up, but I'll have to look into that for next week. All right. There's your assignment. As if you didn't have anything better to do. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't have any reading to do or anything. (laughs) You know, I took it very straightforward. At the end of the episode, very last scene, we see the guy spray painting the ghost emblem on the wall. And of course, we know that they're kind of looking at him as their savior. We have the machine, if you will, of the Ashveni, the system looking at a machine in that context. Definitely, he is the ghost in the machine. It reminded me, though, uh, a little bit of Fringe Season 5. You see people putting up posters and of Mm. uh, Etta being the symbol of hope. And it seems like ghost is that symbol of hope here. Yeah, I like that. Definitely. Um, Yeah, I, I took it very much that way, too. I think when we when we both had seen the episode title posted way back, you know, I don't know, was that winter or something that they showed us the script and um I I think I had some theories there, but I like that it, it that it ended up being this way that they that they're calling him the ghost. It's kind of a I don't know, a dystopian take on heroes. <laughs> yeah. I like it too. Yeah. So, you mentioned the dystopian take i mean this episode this whole series is very dystopian this this episode very dystopian but it didn't start out that way it started out with gosh as much hope as we have seen in a long time and this was visually very stunning because we don't see a lot of green in the show when we do see some green we do see some trees and some even some fields but not with bright midday sun like we had at the very beginning of the episode it was definitely done intentionally and you just knew you had this feeling that bad stuff was just fixing to happen bad juju was about to fall from the sky (laughs) once again yeah literally yeah Yeah. no i think that's a very good observation it seems i mean especially on this show and i know they did it they do it on continuum a lot too you know when you see bright colors it usually is a good indication that something bad is about to happen but especially with this one, when they get out into the open fields and you see them enjoying just nature, things that the Ashveni have not tainted. Yeah, bad stuff is about to happen. They said on uh, Greg Beeman's blog, they said that they walked around Vancouver for hours and days just looking for the right spot to shoot it. And as they were having the crews go around and gauge whether this would be a good place to shoot, it was just pouring rain. And then when they actually brought the actors out there to shoot, it was just sunny and warm and beautiful and just ended up working perfectly for the scene. Because as they're going up that hill to the, the, you know, the final hill to look into Charleston, it's like that is the last struggle they needed before they got home. And, and that's and where it hit the fan. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> tick, tick, boom. Well, if that, you know what I mean. Yeah. That uh, video that I mentioned that I shared to our Facebook wall, the two minute behind the scenes video, they yeah. mentioned in that video that they shot that scene in Langley, which is a suburb of Vancouver. And it made me immediately remember one of our devoted fringe podcast listeners. Her name was Langley. And she, that was her screen name because she lives in Langley, British Columbia. Okay, cool. Yeah. I I don't know what isn't shot in Vancouver anymore. I know, especially in the sci-fi world. I know. They all just kind of 
incestuously gather there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they share. Uh, No, it doesn't matter. Anyway, moving on. Is it any surprise that Matt doesn't have any idea who Walter Payton is? Uh, No, I, I know. By the time he would have been old enough to actually be enjoying sports, that's when the aliens came, I suppose, but just made me sad. And Walter Payton has, you know, sadly has been dead now for many years. Um, you know, he was an iconic member of the 1985 Chicago Bears Super Bowl mm-hmm. championship team. Great, great NFL legend. But, you know, you're a football fan. I thought you would make note of that. And you did. I did. Yes. So you weren't surprised that I made note of it. Not at all. I would expect nothing uh, less of you. I was trying to surprise you. I can't mm-hmm. do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're returning to Charleston, and one of one of the questions I had almost immediately was whether this, uh, you know, as the, as Tom and Anne are climbing up the hill, he says, "How long have we been traveling? Twenty days?" You know, for the audience, it was a good gauge for how long this has been going on, and it is indeed twenty days from the uh, takedown of the Ashveni grid, um, which I read about in Greg Beeman's blog, which I will be talking about a lot in this episode. I apologize, but. It gives us a little background. When I said that Emily was a, I didn't call you a fangirl. That's the one thing I should have called you. And I, all the things I said about Emily and Greg Beeman at the top of the show, I wasn't making that up. Like there's like a restraining order against her from him. Hey, let's not go that far. <laughs> Maybe there should be. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, my, my goal in life is to get a restraining order. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good goal or not, but yeah. Yeah, so 20 (laughs) days since the end of the last season. The first thing that had kind of given me the indication that it was 20 days after the end of last season was the fact that it was Lexi was portrayed by the same actress. And if we're to believe she's growing rapidly, it couldn't have been more than that, I suppose. But Although, when you... Did you look up the distance from Charleston to Boston? It seems like 20 days is I did. kind of rapid <laughs> travel. It was pretty generous. It was pretty... Oh, no, it was not generous at all. So Charleston is in South Carolina. So they have to get from Boston to Charleston, which is 942 miles, you know, with no roadblocks or any obstructions. Uh, so I, I kind of broke it down and thought that if if they if they're, if they at least travel 43 miles a day walking at least 12 hour days, they'd have to walk four miles an hour, which is about, you know, a 15 minute mile. So I don't know. I mean, how much can you imagine having to get all of the gas that would be required to go that distance? I mean, I can get there on probably a tank and a half. Yeah. But that's also these, these vehicles are using aren't, aren't, don't look to be exactly very fuel efficient. And there was a point right. in season two where getting fuel was part of the story. It was really yep. hard to get fuel. Yep. So they must have hit the jackpot or maybe the bulm helped them out a little bit. Maybe. <laughs> they upgraded them all <laughs> to, uh, right. uh, what is it in Back to the Future, the uh, fusion? What? Come on. You know this. I, I should know the this. The only thing I know about Back to the Future is the flux capacitor. Well, the car becomes, you know, Mr. F- Mr. Fission, Mr. Fusion, Mr. Fusion. That's what it is. That's, they fuel the car. He starts putting in beer cans and banana peels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you okay. make me no, feel I, I got old. I got yeah. I'm sorry. That's I don't right. intentionally mean to do that. That's all right. So we also learn that a little bit later in the episode that the Volm left three weeks 
after the end of what we saw in season four. So, man, it looks like as soon as the Volm left town, the the Ashvini took no time striking out against the humans and trapping them, you know, and, and the attack that we saw right there outside of Charleston happened right, yes, as, right at the moment know. or very close to when the Volm left. Right. Yeah, I, I had written that down in the show notes here because I at first thought I couldn't remember what the Volm had told, had instructed the humans to do, but it was to vacate Boston. So I, I had kind of thought that they meant the entire Eastern seaboard. I don't know why I thought that, but that they had just told them to go inland for some reason, but no, it was just, just leave Boston. So they're, they're going back to Charleston. And I thought, I wasn't sure if it was weird that they called it home. They, uh, they didn't spend a great deal of time there, but they settled in, I suppose. They spent as think? much time there as they have any other place, I guess. They spent, spent all of season three there. Yeah. But it wasn't that, well, I, okay, so four months or seven months leading up to that even. Yeah. All right. I'm good with that then. Yeah. I thought it was odd. Eerie, maybe a better word. Lexi, as the attack is about to happen, has it, it's just seconds away. She looks up and she says, we don't all have to die here. So she had some sort of premonition or foreknowledge of some type that an attack was about to happen. How creepy is that? How do you, what's your take on that? I think it's a huge step from what we saw her do in the, at the end of last season. I mean, the biggest cliffhanger from season three was her removing the eye worms from Lourdes and going from having control over that alien technology to actually being able to psychically detect impending doom might you say that is that is a big step and and not even a step it's it's probably all wrapped up into the same psychic power but <laughs> it certainly bears insight into the theories that we have about what her true purpose is wouldn't you say do you feel that it was uh, that her entire existence is a little bit more sinister after that prediction or that premonition. I yeah, that's just a part of the reason that I feel a whole lot more sinister about her today than I did a week ago before I saw the episode. It's uh, sinister is a really good way of putting it, and we've got some really good feedback. We'll we'll talk about. I think Barb is the one talking about that. Uh, we'll okay. get to that in just a few minutes when we get when we start talking about Lexi more. Um, but yeah, there's something there, something unsettling. Something very unsettling. So my biggest question throughout this entire fight scene at the beginning, which was really well done and very well acted. I mean, I think it was mostly told through Tom's point of view. We get to see how each of his family members fares from a distance, not entirely right away. But he says at one point, they're trying to fence us in something along those lines. And my question was, would they have been better off just not fighting back? That's a tough one to, for me to answer because they were, I mean, the mech came out and started shooting them and, and, you know, throwing fire at them. So had they not fought back and tried to scramble, they might've just all gotten the bullets that day. But we learned later in the episode when Tom says they're not really killing us anymore. They're not using the eye mm -hmm. worms and they're not harnessing the children. So I don't know. I, 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 I kind of think they would have just slaughtered them all, though. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell when I on the on the rewatch. I couldn't tell whether they were only shooting at them because they were being shot at, 
or if there was some sort of population control going on because at at one point it might even be at the end of the episode it's interesting that they are keeping these people alive but they don't have any problem extinguishing them can they not get them all under control so whether they need just a certain amount in order to do whatever they intend to do maybe they don't they, maybe they shouldn't keep too many in their pockets so that they can't rise up against them i'm not sure it just seemed uh <laughs> i mean the more they fought the more separated they all became they were separated by fire separated by the walls and it just seemed like if they had all just laid down their weapons and surrendered they would have all been together <laughs> but you know then we wouldn't have had a show so yeah maybe so speaking of the wall man that man. was really sad was it lyle that we saw just get splattered Bazinged. yeah yeah Trying to find it in the notes. Yeah. I thought I had it somewhere, but I'm pretty sure it was Lyle. Yep, it was Lyle. Yeah, I bet he didn't love it. No, he did not. Come I think on. he was, he was with like, he was with the what? That was a joke. Oh, Lyle, love it. Nope. All right. Who's is that? Another? He's a athlete? country singer. He's an old country singer. Oh, oh. Okay, I think I know who he is. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, you're in the north. You're not supposed Sorry. to know who country singers are. In the north. Yeah. No, that that fence was really cool too. It, you know, we keep getting different types of technology every year, and that one is definitely. I mean, they're definitely taking a different tactic with the humans, and it's the defensive weapons that are always the most intriguing. You know, the offensive weapons are cool and shiny and flashy, but it's the defensive weapons that you just like scratch your head at, and <laughs> how are you supposed to? topple this one there's there's nothing solid to fight against yeah i thought when it first came down i thought you know because tom had matt in his arms didn't he not in his arms but they were running together yeah okay i thought maybe it was when ben had lexi at one point i thought one of them should try to stick one of the kids through the wires that would have been as we saw with lyle that would have been splat city yeah but you didn't know. I mean, originally when you see it, you think there's holes in the fence, but there's not. Yeah. There's not. Yeah. You can't pass anything through it. Ugh. All right. Well, let's, uh, where are we at next on the, on the notes here? Well, let's jump to four months later. Okay. So now they did scatter. It put them into different groups. We have Tom and Weaver in prison and they are in isolation. Although, let's be honest, they could probably break through those walls and get together pretty easily if they wanted to, but I think they're wise and not not pulling that maneuver quite yet. Tector, Hal, and Pope are down below in the ghetto prison city area, and I guess they are in Charleston. What do you think? It depends. Um, It depends on how big that fence is, because they were certainly boxed in toward the city, when we left or when when it left off four months earlier but whether they just settled right there i don't know Uh, greg beeman just calls it an american city so i don't even know if it's it probably isn't even relevant because it's lying in ruins right now (laughs) i don't think they stayed there it could be charleston but whatever it is it is an urban area not kind of out of urban area or, or near urban like we saw there uh before the the attack, uh, you know, we could have seen the we, what we saw the the black hornets come in at one point. So they could have been carried off to any location by either black hornets or, 
you know, That's true. mechs could have driven them off, like uh, captured POWs or something. Right. Because Cochise tells us that it's worldwide, these fences. All right. Hmm. Uh, let's see. What else yeah. do we have? Lexi is with Ben and Maggie and Lourdes in some sort of peace town, no. <laughs> Chinatown looking thing. Nondescript Chinatown. Yeah. Some safe haven, some... Like a Zen garden type of thing. Yeah, Zen garden. That's a good word for it. Very Zen. Um, Anne is with Anthony and Denny. They are on the run, trying to take an offensive position. Yeah, it seemed it was very reminiscent of early season two when they were on their way to Charleston. You know, all of the back roads and trying to find their way to get from A to B. Uh, I was not. I did not catch where Matt was. But did you recognize the building they were being kept in? No, I didn't really pay attention to it. I guess I'm not positive because I didn't go back and look. But you remember in season three when they went to look for Anne after she disappeared, and they found that woman on the steps of some big building, and then they buried her. Yeah, it kind of looked like that building. Okay. But, you know, cleaned up and spruced up. But, but I, I mean, it's Vancouver, so they could just be reusing locations. But, uh, you know, maybe the Eshveni cleaned it up and made it their Nazi camp. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what it is. It's a re-education camp. You know, we talked last week about how this show has had a lot of similar story paths to Revolution. And this is definitely yes. another one of those that we saw very prevalent in Revolution Season 2. So Matt, by himself... Uh, not alone, yeah. but as far as the rest of people that he has grown up being around, he's by himself in this right. re-education camp. split off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Tom and the uh, the group there. Uh, interestingly, not interestingly, no, not surprising in the least. <laughs> surprising. Uh, and it's just one of those things that you love about Tom. I love about Tom. Mm. He is a historian. He was a history professor at Boston University. We spoke about that last week. He's always been very quick to remind people of the foundations of the nation and to, mm-hmm. to rely upon those same tenets as they try to have some sor- sort of semblance of order and civilization. And so it's no surprise that he would at any space he can find with any utensil he can find to have written all over his wall, uh, walls, uh, any surface it looked like, uh, any piece of important documents from American history. We saw the Gettysburg Address. We saw the um, part of the uh, Declaration of Independence. We saw part of the Pledge of Allegiance, I think, was also there. A lot of things were on those walls. Yeah, yeah. No, I and I loved that he just transcribed the Gettysburg Address. That was one I had to memorize in college. And just what's always so profound about that is just it was Abraham Lincoln dedicating a certain spot of land to the people who gave up their lives for this country. And and it's totally him reclaiming once again the land that they are established on. And he has become that cog in the machine that's going to make the difference. And, you know, (laughs) I just love that. Yeah. It's refreshing. It's a, it's a, it's for us watching this show. I think it's also a a bit of um, normalcy in this dystopian world. It's an anchor that we can latch onto and identify with. And I know that's what it serves for him as well. And I love it. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it just very early in each of the last two seasons, you know, all through them, it's always been that point when you know Tom is coming up with something pivotal that's going to just change the game when he when he lays out, you know, the battles of Lexington and Concord were not fought too far from this place. And you're just like, yeah, I, we, we can see those cogs turning in your brain, man. We know something's going to happen. So this this is this is when he's thinking when he is full of hope and when he is reminiscing on the past and how our forefathers have brought us to this point. That is when he he he's at his best. And that's what we see here. And it's a good thing too. I mean, I'm I'm not a history buff like uh, a lot of people are. I'm not even close. But you know, we weren't really supposed to win the War of Independence. We were outnumbered. We were. Uh, right. There were so many reasons why we should, and we maybe we, w- we wouldn't have without the French. But it's a good reminder <laughs> that they're not supposed to win this war. They're not only outnumbered, but they're outgunned. But right. you know that they will, and they'll find a way for victory, and it'll be in a way that the Ashvini couldn't predict and it'll be awesome you know we'll be high-fiving right. beating our chests when it happens and that's definitely the impression that we get from tom in this episode his discussions with weaver about how it is the ashveni are taking a completely different tactic and they don't they don't even know what's going on with matt but they can already see that they're trying to keep them alive and that they're, well, so let's see, they're feeding us, they're, they want us lucid, they want us sane. Mm-hmm. Tom recognizes that they need them, and that is a game changer in and of itself. So taking what we were just talking about in that Tom is, is you know, starting to form the bits and pieces that will comprise the small militias that will poke the holes in the Ishveni plans, you know, it's, meanwhile, the game is changing around them too. So I think those were two disparate thoughts, but connecting them (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so once again they're just they have to take a different approach because this is just a completely different game now that man those black hornets those were some creepy looking things yeah they they, would not want to get carried away by one of those not at all they were smaller than i thought they didn't look like they were full-size skitters I don't care, man. They're creepy. They're crazy. They like their, their legs were like shriveled up. And, yeah. <laughs> and they wrap their tail around you and off oh. you go. Oh, man. Do you think that's, uh, do you think Weaver's daughter was taken off by one of those? I do. I do. I think that's the gist that I got. Is that what you got too? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Man, creepy, creepy, creepy. Well, uh, surprising. And then again, not surprising. Tom is so smart. And he's going to use his brains first rather than his brawn, which is really his most powerful asset. And uh, and he uses his brain to to escape undetected out of his cell, you know, at will, in order to scope out the town, in order to determine what type of assets they have, and in order to figure out the weakness and exploit it uh, when it comes to the skitters and the Ashvini. Gotta love that. You really have to love that. I wasn't sure at first if he was actually going a bit crazy. And not because he'd written all over the walls. That would be the obvious part. (laughs) But, I mean, if they know that the walls are impenetrable, what would be the purpose of uh, citing where each of the skitters have come from while he's scoping it out and drawing them out? What do you think he's trying to do there? Why is he looking for... 
their home base or uh, maybe what would you call it like a, a position of defense what do you call it when you're scoping things out you're you're assigned to your station or your quarter well i think he's trying to understand his enemy and yeah. i think he recognizes that ultimately getting out of his cell and even finding out the location of the skitters isn't going to be sufficient enough to help him get out of his situation. I don't know that that's his goal either. Getting out of his situation may not be his primary objective. Yeah. It could be a, an ultimate objective, but that they have to do something else first. However, mm-hmm. having said that he did make contact with Cochise and the Cochise is on the outside of the wall. So now mm-hmm. he could say, I, I knew he would come back eventually. I didn't know when, I was going to scout out the territory, figure out a game plan, know my enemy so that when the Volm did return, we could have something planned and ready to go. Right. I like that. I didn't think about that part of it because even as reluctant as Cochise seemed to commit fully to Tom, despite probably the want, the need or the want to, the desire to connect with him. <laughs> Remember when uh, Tom prepared to meet his father, Cochise's father, and then he never even got to give him his battle plans. So hopefully it won't end up like that. But yeah, no, I like I, re- I really like that, that uh, he was just, he was gathering the information about what he can on the inside to give to Cochise when he's ready. Huh. The BFFs are back together. <laughs> they are. Uh, and Tom, excuse me, Weaver seems a little bit crazy. Uh, I guess you were talking about Cochise and Tom. I was thinking you were talking about Weaver and Tom. Um, but they're kind of BFFs too. Oh yes, oh yes, them too. They're all BFFs. It's a BFF triangle. Well, I mean, it's a yeah. Never mind. We won't worry about that. Uh, <laughs> one thing that I think I heard, and I went back and listened to it again, and I, I mean, I know I heard it right, but I don't know the context. Is that the in the first scene with Hal and Tector when they go throw that electrical thing against the electrical fence? Yep. Hal says something along the lines of. Uh, it, uh, it calls it his dad's idea to do this. Did you hear that part? I don't recall specifically that comment. No. Okay. How's that for like a courtroom style <laughs> answer? <laughs> and neither confirm or good. deny. Well, <laughs> I mean, was it was that? so quiet that it could have just been like something that Hal's dad had told him a long time ago. But I, I mean, I had a suspicion the entire episode that Hal actually knew where his dad was and that he was the ghost but mm. my, but I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe uh, Tom and Hal are communicating in some way, and I don't know why Tom would instruct him to do something when he's off doing recon. But maybe just to cause distractions. Maybe one. that, or maybe because he thinks that they need to learn more about the wall so they can know what its weaknesses are, and and so he's oh, got yeah. Hal doing that. I love the idea though that Hal would know that his dad is the ghost. I. I didn't pick up on that, and and I I love the idea that that could be possible. I also think it's yeah, possible were- though that that Tom was down there with them in the ghetto at some point and caused so much trouble that that's what caused him to be arrested and put into solitary. And it was during that oh, time I, when he was down in the ghetto with them that Tom might have mentioned it, but I don't recall that line, yeah. so I'm not sure. I'm just yeah. kind of no, you know, it was so it was so small that it's just a suspicion that. You know, they're still working together in some way, but it's not, I mean, it's not unlike Hal to pick up right where his dad left off either. Right. Mm, I wish I'd picked up on that. I'm glad you did, because that really could be one of those small lines that seems 
forgettable like I did, but yet gives us a great clue to what's going on. Yeah. Good for you. Oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. So the other thing we see down here in the ghetto is Pope. Now, when you and I did our podcast <laughs> last week, we talked about when we did our character sketch of Pope, we talked about how selfish he is and how he's just looking for a chance to kind of call his own shots. Man, I had no idea though, that we were going to see that to such a degree in the very first episode of the season. <laughs> yeah. This is the epitome of Pope. This is, this is when Pope has been in jail again. He's, uh, you know, when it's all about a man's environment, right? If you're, if you put Pope, in prison, but he is technically imprisoned within the large confines of Charleston, meaning that he's not going to leave because he doesn't want to go without food. You know, so he's mentally imprisoned more than he's physically imprisoned. He's going to behave so much differently <laughs> than if he's actually imprisoned. Now he's just selfish nutbag again. He totally is. And you would think that he would have a desire to get on the other side of that fence and fend for himself. You don't you? Do you th or do you think he wants to stay where he can at least? I think he wants to stay where he has the most control and the most power and the most means to live. And, I, you know, I think right when when he actually sees that there is hope to get out of here, uh -huh. then he will jump on the bandwagon. But until the, the until there is any semblance of a plan that's that he actually can get on board with, he is completely content being here. <laughs> Maybe, well, that seems what it, what that definitely seems to be the case. And he was called a coward for that. And I think aptly so. Mm. Um, but you would think that a, a, a guy that is such a B.A. as he pretends to be would be mm -hmm. say, let me out of this place. Let me at him. And that's not the case at all. Well, not even willing to spare his generator. So Hal and Tector can try a little bit more power on the wall. Well, he did have to watch Gilligan's Island. I know. Are they ever going to get off that Island? I don't know. <laughs> they have to go back. I love the fight though, between Hal and Pope. I tweeted Drew Roy on Twitter and I, I you know, I think the consensus, I saw a couple of other people tweet basically the same thing. And that was, I'm sorry you lost. We wanted you to win that fight, but in reality, Pope can take Hal at this at this stage in life. And with this, as as tough as Hal is, as many skills as he has sharpened over the last three seasons, Pope still got his number at this point. But man, I think we're all rooting for Hal to be able to get him give Pope oh, his yes. come up. It's one of these days. One of these days. Yeah, I love the fight though. Did you? Oh, entirely. I thought it was very reminiscent of all of the angst between the two men of the past you know it was pope beating him down and then realizing that he's still kind of a young kid that <laughs> can't defend himself and just letting it go but yeah there's still you know it, it makes you realize that there is some humanity in there with pope which we never really doubted it just it's really hard to draw it out of him sometimes uh, you mentioned the guest actor that we had. Um, what's his character's name? Do you did you write that down? Uh, yeah, uh, Dagon Botha. Okay, yeah, he's the guy at the very end there of of Hal and and Tector's scene where he he says he's been all over the world and is broken out of these ghetto camps and he knows how to get out of them. So if you are right with Hal being able to communicate with Tom, hey. That takes that that knowledge or this contact that they've just made and has made it a whole lot more valuable. It was valuable before, right. but man, if he is connecting with Tom like you predict, then that's really important. That would be really cool. Yeah, it it was interesting to have that character 
jump in at the last minute. Wonder how he's gotten out. That'll be, I'm very interested in that. Yeah. I bet it's going to be something completely unrelated to tanking down the fence. That's, that's my random prediction. I bet they're going about it all wrong. <laughs> wonder it's if it, so- uh, I'm just trying to think of how they could do it. I yeah. wonder if, you know, how we saw Lexi reflect the moonlight off her hand. Maybe yeah. they have to like stick something in between the two beams and reflect it back around and create a. Something that won't slice the object in half. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever material that is. I could, I could see that. But he, but that doesn't seem practical if it's a certain material because he'd have to find that material in every location that he's been to. You think it'd be something very that's true simple, but yet not obvious. Yeah, I mean mirrors work in the movies, so <laughs> all I'm saying. <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk about Anne. Anthony Denny is in that group. Still looking for Lexi four months later. Of course she would be. She's a mom. She's always going to be looking for her child. But mm-hmm. she is intense. Holy cow. Relentless. Like, you can sleep tomorrow if you're lucky type of, you know, you'll eat when I tell you. I don't know if I like this or not. I don't know if this is a good leader or not. As someone who has just lost their child, I can see how that could be a little bit of a... I don't know, what'd you call it? Rage? Something inside of her that just kind of snapped. Yeah. I mean, she, she spent months imprisoned by Karen only to get free, spend 20 days with Tom together before <laughs> getting snatched away again and having everything torn apart. So I can, I can see her totally snapping, but I mean, it, it's so cool because it's a, it's such a different context than we've ever seen Anne in before. We've never seen her as this warrior. I think I put, earlier in our notes that I don't think I've ever seen her pick up a gun before. Hmm. And at the beginning, at the opening scene, you see her pick up a, or Tom sees her pick up a a semi-automatic and aim it up high, but I could be wrong about that. Point, in fact, being that she was not, I mean, she was the doctor. (laughs) She was the healer, not the, not the person to bring death and pain. So this is, this is very much a violation of the first do no harm code. (laughs) I just thought, I would, I would have thought that if they are in a survival situation, they're also in an offensive situation. But I would have thought Anthony being one of the berserkers might have taken more of a lead. It's clear that she's, she's leaning on Anthony. He seems to be her mm-hmm. number two, but I would have thought that maybe he would have been the leader. You know, Anthony has always taken a bit of a, of a second in command role. I mean, they put him, they put him with the berserkers in the first place to keep a handle on Pope. Well, I guess Pope had saved his life after he had saved Pope's life. So, Maybe that doesn't count, but he's even when even when Manchester asked him to spearhead the investigation of the mole, he was a bit hesitant. You know, he's he always seems a little bit uh, reluctant to take that leadership role. So maybe there's some backstory there that we need. But it seems like the most unlikely character usually takes the reins and we end up paying for it in ways that they can't foresee. They don't have quite the military or the leadership role necessary, but. I don't know. You think it's bad that she's done this? Well, that's what I was going to say. I don't think she's doing a bad job. I don't think she's a... a yeah. I, I did say I thought she was a bad leader a moment ago, and I, I wish I hadn't said that. I think that... I think there needs to be room to exhale, to water the horses, and 
just what we what we saw here didn't give me the impression that she was watering the horses very much. And yeah, you, but they've been going for four months. I don't know how they could have made it that long if they were this intense for four months straight. So maybe we just picked them up right in the, the heat of you know a battle, yeah. and that's we'll, we'll learn more when we have more context. Right. Or maybe she's just gotten a lot more frantic in the last couple of weeks, even, you know, she wasn't this intense four months ago. So it had to be some sort of a gradual change, maybe. But I'm not sure. Yeah, it's definitely something that we'll, we can't we don't have enough context to make a, a full. Right. Yeah. The, uh, Matt and Anne and Anthony, the, all their storylines got very little airtime this week, I felt like. But uh, one of the biggest question marks for me was Denny, actually, because she and Ben were very active in the scouting missions last year, last season, I should say. And it was surprising that she seemed to be out of breath and almost incompetent. You know, she seems like she should be bringing the most useful news with their supersonic hearing and super duper eyesight. But she seemed a little bit under the weather, as they say. That didn't even occur to me. Did she have her spikes removed? That is the question I asked. I didn't think so. I thought they both she and Ben had decided together to keep them. That's what I thought as well. Hmm. I guess we'll find out. Maybe, but maybe something else happened. Yep. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Uh, they, they went to blow the bridge. That didn't go as planned. There were a couple of things in there that I thought were a little bit weak. I don't know how that small bomb that she made would have killed the driver the way that it did and that sort of thing. Very convenient that the buffest guy in their group got to be the one to take his shirt off. Uh, you know, I'm guessing you didn't mind that so much. What? <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> uh, they thought they were recovering a truck hauling tons of ammo. It turns out they are. it's hauling a cargo of children. Oh, can you imagine if they had blown that bridge and then discovered the children inside? And might have really snapped. <laughs> she might have. She seems to be that Divine she, she could be getting close to that. But was it a mistake? Did Denny get bad intel? Or is this like a Matrix thing where they are using these kids for some sort of ammo? Right. Well, I guess I thought they were just taking them to Matt's, one of Matt's camps. I think that's the safe assumption. I just didn't know. I thought since okay. Denny gathered intel that they were carrying oh. ammo... Maybe they were, but that would be a pretty dark mm. path if we see that actually executed on screen. I don't know if I would want the show to do that. Okay. I, you know, people, we don't, we don't want to see kids get harmed. Right. Yeah. Right. We don't want that. I'm going to say bad intel. Yeah. No, I would say so too, because one thing, one piece of information we get from Matt is that they're not harnessing kids anymore. Right. And instead trying to brainwash them. So turning them into weapons that way. Maybe they've just discovered that the human body doesn't allow for the best use of robotic children. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know either. Maybe they decided that uh, this brainwashing is, is a better technique than the, the harnessing. Yeah. Well, here's what Mark had to say about Anne. I did like the story with uh, the Anne and, and Anthony and that group. The only thing I didn't like about that part, I'm saying a lot of stuff that I don't like, but and yet I, I did rate the episode an eight. Please remember that. I really did like the episode, but there's just little things I'm nitpicking on. Anne's character. How many times did we hear Anne say, I have to find Lexi. I have to get back to Lexi. 
this is four months later and we heard her say it so many times. I don't think she's fit to be their leader. And I don't understand why Anthony and the others are following her if that's all. Like she's got a one-track mind that she has to get back to Lexi. Now that's okay. You you have to do that. Just like at the beginning of season one where Tom really wanted to get Ben, but he realized there's other stuff that had to be done. And it wasn't always like, go get Ben, go get Ben. There was other missions. And sometimes, you know, you had to do something else and forget what your main objective was in this case to get Ben. But Anne, it just seems like that was all she's thinking of is I got to get to Lexi. Everything she thinks about every think she talks about. And I was just getting a little tired of that point. So, and again, after four months, other people would, would not be following her anymore. If that's all she talked about for four months is I got to get to Lexi. I like his point about the way Tom was kind of the same mindset in, in season one, but there was also some balance and compromise that he had to make when yep. the greater good was involved in, instead of his own personal mission. Or if you fulfill this mission, then you'll have the freedom to go and try to rescue Ben. We didn't see that again with Anne, but I think there needs to be more context. I think I'll go back to my comment there. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can say, I I loved the parallel to Tom looking for Ben. That was perfect because the only explanation for it is that she's completely snapped. I mean, when you get fixated on something and it's all that you have to think about and worry about, I mean, you know, women, (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) You're not going to put me in that corner. I'm not going to make a comment about that. (laughs) Well played, Daryl. Well played. (laughs) Um, I had a thought and I think it just left me, but no, I I mean, all I can say is I think she probably snapped. I was getting a little tired of it too. The other thing that I have to keep reminding myself is Anne gave birth to Lexi less than a year ago. Right. Six months ago, and, maybe? Right. Uh, yeah. Seven? Something like that? I Yeah, I don't. I guess I don't know how long she was gone for in season three, but I mean, within a year. And I cannot imagine the, the post-traumatic stress that she must be going through right now in terms of, you know, rapidly aging child and... <laughs> And not being able to understand all of the nuances of this little girl that is now in her life and now suddenly not. I mean, in her mind, it's she's still an infant and yet she's a young girl. And there's just it's so difficult to reconcile those two. It's a great point. You remember the last was not the last time we saw Anne, but, you know, she's well, I'm trying to formulate my thought here. We saw her go a little bit crazy when she found out that Lexi was not human. Right. When nobody would believe her. Well, we'll find out more, I'm Ooh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely interesting. Let's talk about Ben. He has been in a coma for four months, which I found shocking. When you just mentioned how physically capable he is, you know, at least mm-hmm. he was last season, running long dis- distances without being out of breath, being able to do, you know, chin ups and, and uh, push ups forever, those sorts of things. So, to him to have some sort of um, physical trauma that would put him into a coma of all the people to be put into a coma. Uh, the one that's most physically capable of, of all of them is the one that is, you know, finds himself in that position for four months. I know. I can't wait to figure out what actually happened because it had to be something big. And I bet it had something to do with the skitters because of the spikes or whatever. Maybe they were keeping him in an induced coma or maybe there was something looming overhead that they that this haven isn't aware of that was jamming his frequency, if you know what I mean. But 
yeah, that was very, very odd. And even more interesting that, I mean, I, I thought that Maggie was overly excited to see him. And that might just be because of whatever weird effect <laughs> this Nirvana has on <laughs> all of them. But it was, uh, the reactions of all of his friends were very shocking. Yeah. I mean, the entire place was shocking. I should, I should start Yeah, there. the whole thing was, uh, a lot of things were, were shocking about that. Lourdes, she cleans up pretty well. <laughs> she she just swapped one crazy for another. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. I I mean there are there are no words for what's going on in this place. Actually there are words. I won't be offended, but do you remember when I covered Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein for Lost? Keep going. Uh okay, so it's a story about Valentine Michael Smith, whom they call Mike. He was born human, but raised on Mars by Martians. And when he's returned to Earth in his early 20s, I believe, uh, he has to acclimate to Earth's atmosphere and then begins to develop a, kind of a, a dual citizenship where he possesses the many uh, ad- advantageous aspects of his biology while still being able to survive on earth. And so as he interacts with the people in his life, he begins to show them a better way to live by harnessing those Martian qualities. And um, I mean, he has psychic abilities. He's able to move without walking. He's able to, let's see, I think he has psychic powers and that he can read people's minds, um, ends up starting a cult with one of the, uh, women who helps rescue him in th- at the beginning of the book. Is this sounding familiar at all? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> let's see. Basically, I found this cult to be a lot like that, where we've been talking that, uh, that Lexi has the, this, uh, hybrid DNA, mm-hmm. not unlike, you know, a, mar- uh, a human being raised by Martians. But there, I mean, there's, there are a lot of differences between the two. So I'm not making a, absolute parallel here but it's just interesting that we see whenever we see someone who appears to have it all figured out and and be able to do things that we can't do we 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 kind of tend to latch on to those things (laughs) and hope that that will make our lives better and by all appearances it does except for when it doesn't obviously but i don't know i it, it seems very cultish what lexi has done with this community and I, I, I just wonder if, if it originated around her or if she found them. Yeah, I want to know that too. Everything just seems too good to be true. It seems yeah. like something is obviously amiss, and maybe someone who hasn't. It's like you, you've. Uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but you put a frog in water, and you 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 turn the water up slowly. He won't realize it's gotten warm, and and he'll boil to death. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it's like Ben has been thrust into the boiling water, and he says, "Whoa, this water is mm-hmm. hot. This is not right." And everyone else has kind of grown accustomed to it, and they're like, "I don't know what you're talking about. This is wonderful. This is glorious." Yeah, yeah. So I think that he. Him feeling like something is wrong is definitely right, but will anyone come to his side or will he be brought over to their side, which will be the, which will happen first? 
Yeah. If he can, if he can maintain his skepticism just long enough, <laughs> maybe we can throw a couple more wrenches in there. But I was really intrigued by her necklace. Yes. I meant to go back and watch that scene again. She said something to the effect of it keeps the three of them together. Or she mentioned something about three. Did you write that down? Did you make a note of that? It means unity for all three of us. That's what she said. It means unity for all three of us. Now, interestingly, too, Matt's uniform, all the uniforms in his little concentration camp had three numbers on them. They were all the same number and it was three, mm-hmm. three, three. The number three is important. And right. I'm not one well, of those that's really heavily into uh, biblical numerology, but not just biblical numerology, but numerology in, in general. Um, mm-hmm. There are some interesting things here. The number three, uh, of course you have the Trinity, uh, the, the three and one triune God, but there could also be some, some other things. Um, many significant things in the Bible happen on the third day. Jesus rose on the third day. Jonas was in the belly mm-hmm. of the well for three days and, and many, many more. Uh, so the number three is significant um, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Now, also the number six is the number of man, which three being half of six. Maybe you could read something into that. Maybe, you know, they're not. The aliens aren't allowing them to be their fullness. They're cutting them down. I don't know. I think that's probably a little bit too much conjecture, but it's interesting too. I think this number, the number three is they're, they're throwing that out there so that we can kind of have our feelers up and try to figure out what significance yeah. or what symbolism we could pour into that. Well, someone in the chat just mentioned human Ashveni skitter. Okay. As far as the you know, three? Go, yeah. So going along the lines of predictions or we've made about Lexi being some sort of unifier, somebody to unite the races. I mean, maybe she meant all three of us as in living in harmony with the alien races. Well, I was thinking Volm human and Ishvini. I wasn't thinking Skitter because to me, the Skitters and the mechs are, although mechs seem to be robotic, not humanoid or not living creatures. They're just, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, where skitters are an actual yeah. living creature, um, but I still look at both of them as kind of these pawns of minions. And, 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 yeah. yeah, minions. Uh, that's a better word, minions of the Ishveni. But having said that, you could be right. It could be uh, Ishveni skitters. Well, even if it's not the skitters, like human Ishveni, maybe maybe there's a third group that we just haven't met yet. Mm-hmm. But maybe it is the Volm. I, I don't know. Uh, I have a hard time believing the Ashveni would want to unify with the Volm, but who knows? Well, I was, I was going to play this a little bit later, but this is sounds like this is as good of a place to play it as any here. Barb has a really interesting thought on the Ashveni okay. and the Volm. Here it is. I think the Volm negotiated to leave the humans alive in ghetto camps, to re-educate the children rather than harnessing them, and to stop using eyeworms to control humans, and to press for safe havens for humans who wouldn't fight the Ashveni. I think that was the best they could do for the humans while saving their own families. And it's a very tenuous alliance, as we saw from the last scene. The Asfini are clearly in charge. The Asfini were smart enough to see how parents fought to save their harness children, so they agreed. No more harnesses. Instead, the kids are being sent to Nazi-style youth reprogramming camps. I think Matt's new friend to his mini-resistance is going to turn him in. It would add to the drama. 
So I was going to play that when we're talking about Matt, but she thinks that the Volm and the Ashveni, before the Volm left town, they signed some sort of Hmm. treaty, you know, document, I don't know if it's a document, but you know, some sort of agreement on here are what you can do with and to the humans. Or maybe not just when they left, but when we learn from Cochise that they had to return to their homeland or to wherever they were keeping all of their, their race safe. Maybe they made a deal there. I don't know how much time has passed, you know, since they left and when they ended up succeeding there at their goal. But interesting. Mm-hmm. Very it's a, interesting. It's a great thought, Barb. I hadn't thought of that. But I like it. I don't know if it's true or not. Maybe yeah. we'll find out one way or the other, but I do like it. I think it's a new, very, very interesting thought. That, I think that that is the only way I can actually see the Volm being part of that triad because otherwise I just, I don't see how they would fit in there. So the only other theory, well, not even theory, but the only other connection I made was that um, in Tolkien mythology, there are three rings that are, that, that uh, have the power of preservation. Right. Uh, fire, water, air, and but they were kept hidden. So it's just a, a very slight. But if she's saying that these rings, well, okay, she she had said to Ben, "Isn't it interesting that you had to protect me, and now I have to protect you?" And I just I I thought about that for a very long time. And other than in the general sense of the word, you know, protecting you from harm in general, but there seemed to be something a lot deeper in his work or in her words than just the straightforward protecting you from the aliens. Yeah, definitely. She's, she seems to know more than she's letting on, which is no surprise. She's always been that way. And, you know, last week when we did our podcast, we mentioned the theory that you had that I presented to Noah Wiley at Comic Con last year. And he was like, oh, I need to write that down. We also talked about how that didn't seem to make any sense now that she was healing Lexi, excuse me, Lourdes at the end of the season. And, and but now I'm not so sure. I don't, I would, I just don't have a, a good vibe about her at all. I don't at all. I don't at all. And especially after this episode and Stranger in a Strange Land had come into my mind and just everything that you see when, when it, I think you actually even just said it not too long ago, when you, when you begin with it and you go along with it and are slowly acclimated into this new world that has struck up around you, you don't even realize that you're inside of it and you're accepting the things that you would have once found absurd. I mean, clearly, because Maggie, there's no way Maggie would be <laughs> totally accepting of this if she had just woken up from a coma. No way. No so way. Having, having Ben just pop in in the middle of it all and be the voice of dissent once again, man, I really, I just really hope that it wakes Maggie up. I, I do too, but Maggie, gosh, you know, it was a little bit weird too. And she's taking a shower and Ben just walks up like, Hey Maggie, how you doing? <laughs> taking a shower. And she's like, yeah. Hitting on his brother's girlfriend. Let me show you something. I think it's going to be his girlfriend before too long. Um, oh, most so definitely. She takes him over to the, mech that's just there now he's a shrine what i I got like a trojan horse vibe out of that oh i loved i loved that when i read that i was totally on board go on i just you don't really the mech is just hanging out there and and lexi shut him down hey that's great i love that lexi shut him down yep but you know what okay lexi saved lordis from the eye bugs 
Lexi saved the Zen Garden from the mech. Lexi is part alien DNA. Where did that alien DNA come from? It seems like it would have only come from one of the two alien species that we've seen. Either the Volm, which doesn't seem very likely now, or the Ishvini, which seems more likely. And if it came from the Ishvini, how can we trust her? How can she, you know, but if, if she saves the Lordus, hey, we all trust Lexi now. If she saves them from the mech, hey, Lexi's our savior. You've got a wolf in sheep's clothing right among um, among you, you know, it's really, I love it, but gosh, I just got a very uneasy feeling. Oh man, I completely agree with that. And it's like, if she, if she has the power to power, <laughs> if she has the ability to power him down, wouldn't she have the ability to power him back up? I mean, what happens when somebody pisses her off and she <laughs> lets go of her power? Yeah. I, I mean, I would just be worried that the, the very opposite of what she has been exacting on these people can just as easily come to fruition as what she has been demonstrating. Yeah. Ah, Yeah. So I love this. I love this trying to speculate what's going on. What role will Lexi have or play? You know, there's a lot going on here that is really uh, fun to kind of put your head around and theorize as to what might happen. Okay. Last point on Lexi. I think we briefly talked about this in terms of the fence, but what in the world is going on with her reflecting the light? I don't know. That was creepy, though. I mean, you mentioned it earlier in your notes. You didn't mention it here in the podcast. When Ben approaches her, you said, did it seem like she glided over to him? I thought the same thing. There was like a, you know, floating. Yeah. And And it wasn't just like a floating, like an angel coming toward her. It was, it was like rapidly approaching she rushed to him yeah again she's got some powers some abilities some non-human attributes that could be the savior of the world or could be (laughs) the destruction you know she she did seem a little surprised right when she when she hit the uh when she hit the light beam she kind of like withdrew her hand really quick and it looked like she was a little surprised by that did you get that impression I don't know. I didn't observe that. I was looking at the hand. I didn't really look at her, the rest of her body. Well, at least you have that going for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's what uh, Barb thought about Lexi. The mech was disabled when it tried to attack the commune, and I think that Lexi prevented that from happening by communicating with the Esfini. I think Lexi will cause problems for the resistance this year, and this will cause tremendous stress between Tom and Anne. Anne doesn't want to lose another child. She's lost too much already. And she won't see, at least initially, the threat her alien daughter could pose. I think she's right. Totally. It's going to be heartbreaking if that happens to be the case, which I could see it going that way. And this is something this show loves to do. They did it with Hal last season. Does he have the eye worm or does he not? Tom has to make a decision to sacrifice his son or to save his son. And you don't know which Mm -hmm. it is. They could be setting Mm -hmm. up that same storyline or a similar storyline with Anne and Lexi this season where she doesn't know. Is Lexi being honest or not? Deceiving or not? Saving the world or or condemning the world? And that that would be wow. fun and fascinating, wouldn't it? I really like that. Yeah. Huh. I really like the parallel to Tom and Hal again because it's it's always been Tom struggling with one of his kids to, in order to, you know, justify whatever actions they've taken and now in that same position, I mean, it's not like Anne has ever been not on his side, but put into those same situations. 
it's like happening all over again. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about Matt. We talked a little bit already. In fact, I don't know that I, I have a whole lot more here to say. I talked about him being in the re- reconditioning camp, the 333 mm-hmm. on all of their uniforms. Which I think is meeting Satan halfway, but... Could be. Know. Maybe so. Maybe so. He's obviously not falling for it. Um, putting he's, he's, hey, he's his, He is his father's son, isn't he? He is his father's son. <laughs> I love it. Oh, and I and I think that's the greatest part of him being off on his own is that he, I mean, the actor, now that he, the actor's older, Maxim Knight gets to really embrace the depth of his character, needing to bring what his father has taught him into the present and take a leadership role. And I'm sure that that kid is just loving having a little diversity in his acting but uh, I just love that he's owning this responsibility. He pioneered this <laughs> group of uh, dissidents and is going to build up some sort of army. I mean, it kind of looks like he chose the weakest of the pack so far, but maybe it just takes a little bit of time. Yeah, I like how they threw in the Sound of Music reference for those of the audience who didn't watch Revolution or might not be as familiar with the reconditioning camps. We can all draw back to... The hills are alive with the sound of music. <sighs> That's where you were Thanks supposed to that. go. Oh. Yeah, I'm not singing. <laughs> I think you already heard me sing once today. It's not, Fine. It's not a pretty sight. Fine. Uh, yeah, no, I. It'll be. I. I was really disappointed that we didn't get more to Matt's story, but I don't really see how they can make that a very big one. I I honestly believe that one of the, well, maybe I should save this for the Twitter poll question, but I really do believe that the first groups that are going to be reunited are Anne and Matt, because they're going to follow the next truck they find carrying weapons to wherever Matt is. So that that's kind of where I see that part going, but um, I, I just don't see how there's enough story in in where Matt is to maybe even carry out half of an episode without catapulting it too far forward. I mean, so maybe so. I think that the the groups will definitely need to converge at some point. This is only this is a little bit longer season. What is it? Twelve episodes or thirteen episodes instead of ten, like we've been getting, but still not a long season. So they need to get these groups together relatively soon so that they can kind of uh, combine their uh, efforts. Right. Well, here's what Mark had to say about Matt. I do not like where where Matt is in the um, German Nazi-style camp. I was really bored, and I just didn't like that, and I hope they don't prolong that for very long. I know there has to be some of the aliens involved with that whole thing to promote that, and uh, but anyways, I just didn't like that part, and whenever they were in there, I was just like, come on, get on to another scene. So he's kind of like you said, where he doesn't think they need to spend too much time on this. I did like it, though. I will reiterate what Mark said a moment ago. He, he There was a lot he liked about the episode. Just the two clips that I pulled from his feedback seemed a little bit more negative, but he really did like it. What I really do appreciate, though, is when that it's not even negative in that he hated the show, but just in the things that you realize aren't really working. And I think that definitely has a point. I think it, it's very uncomfortable, those Nazi children scenes. And I think I think that's at least why it what made me feel that I didn't like it as much, <laughs> at yeah. least. Again, you're messing with children, and that's 
Yep. It's always a little bit that's uncomfortable. A no-no. I think that's why my mom had stopped watching the show in the first place because she saw like the second, first or second episode when they saw when she saw the kids harnessed and she just like could not handle that. Yeah, I don't blame your mom for that anyway. Um, okay, well we we talked about the Volm already. Um, it was interesting to see what happened with them uh, leaving the way that they did. We got a, I think we got a satisfactory story on that because that was one of the things you're wondering is how could this have happened to the humans if the Volm were supposed to be there fighting the Ishvini. So we got that answered in this episode, and I was glad to see that. But Cochise said the Ishvini are building a new power source, and that if they can get that power source completed, it would basically eliminate any chance of victory for humanity. So what is it? Any theories you want to throw out there so that I could be eating some pineapple at some point down the road? (laughs) I see how it is. You know, the most interesting thing to me that Coach she said was that humans are facing extinction. And right. the only thing that I can think of is that they're going to create an army of Lexis. Mm. Because, and, and I'm not saying that this is the direction it's going, but in terms of a weapon that the humans cannot overcome, they cannot overcome extinction. And if that's the route they're heading down, and the only way is to strategically breed the humans, then they have absolute control over those children. And that's, that's freaky. Yeah. But maybe Lexi is trying to pull a fast one on the Ishvini. It's like a, like a lexicon. (laughs) I see what you did there. You don't have to laugh at that. (laughs) You don't have to laugh at that. The one I do get, I can't laugh at. You can if you think it's funny, but don't give me a. You don't don't ever feel like you I have don't. to laugh at my dumb jokes. Oh, I, I think I know. I can just stare at you. Yeah, that's what my wife does. Yeah, really, that's what you got. You want me to? <laughs> that's all I got. Entertain that? I'm not not going to. Uh, all right. Any other comments on the episode? Oh, I don't think so. We covered a lot. We did. There was a lot to cover. You know, it felt like a a pilot episode in a lot of ways. They really did reshuffle the deck and they had to reestablish a lot of things and even reintroduce characters in a lot of ways. We didn't have to know who Mm -hmm. the characters are, but what their circumstances are. And we didn't get full explanation as to how they got into those circumstances, but I think we got enough. And there was a lot to cover because of, of the reshuffling of the deck. And I love that about this show. I love that it's yes, you know, brave enough to say, we've got a good thing going, but let's try this. And yeah. uh, not stick with good, but, but really try to ramp it up. And I think that they did that successfully. Right. And one of the things that I, even coming into the show three, four years ago now, one of Steven Spielberg's uh, absolute, uh, what would you call it, a, a point that he would not stray from was that they're, they're, they were not going to do flashbacks. They had to tell the story in the present and they, they had to make an exception with Tom in the season two premiere. But since then we really have not had a flashback at all. And that is one thing that I really, really like about this episode. I'm not a huge fan of flashbacks. I can see why they're used of course, but I love having to, figure out what happened through dialogue and through people's behavior. And this show makes you do it more than any other. And so it just, it, I don't know, it, it helps, it helps with character depth because you have to, you have to find it in the actor and you can't just be told, mm. I think. Well, for an episode rating, I gave it 8.5 white wigs. <laughs> 
and I gave it eight Nazi children. I said, uh, it's not my favorite premiere, but it definitely got my blood pumping. And aside from a couple nitpicks here and there, I thought it was very well executed yeah. for the size of the budget that this show has. Yeah, no, especially. I completely agree with that. It was really well done. Really well done. Uh, mm -hmm. For me, questions and kind of things I'm looking forward to is um, what will Tom, what will happen with Tom? He thinks he's got a pretty good plan. He's sharing it a little bit with Weaver, but at the same time, the, one of the Ishvini overlords sees the graffiti of the ghost and says, get me that man. And of course they have him in a cell. So you would think they would have the upper hand with capturing Tom before he's able to start executing his plan. Uh, so for me, that's a really big question. Yeah, I would agree with that too. Man, I think I've already voiced all of my questions, but just so excited that we get a couple more episodes this season and that it's back. <laughs> We're getting some answers. Well, we've we've shared some of the uh, feedback that we've gotten in throughout the course of the podcast, and uh, we, but we also have the Twitter poll question. I need to get music. I don't know. Oh. I've been so busy trying to get the other podcasts up off the ground that I forgot that I hadn't gotten these oh. pieces of music for our own, our own podcast. I'll have them next week, but we have a Twitter poll question of the week. And this week's Twitter poll question was Emily, you came up with the question this week. Do you want to do the, uh, BC twit segment here? Do you have it pulled up? Sure. Uh, I think I just addressed this, but, uh, my question was, will any groups be reunited next week? And if so, which ones? So Solo Talk Media, a.k.a. Mark from Canada, says, I think Hal will find out Tom is the ghost, but technically they're in the same group. So my answer is no. Mm hmm. Okay. Uh, Mike Jovial Falcon says, I think Ann and Matt has a chance. Can't see Matt being there more than a couple eps. Oh, that's exactly what I said. I like your thoughts, Mike. And Ian Zort70 says... I think there will have been another few months jump in time so groups could change completely. Interesting. It is interesting. Mm -hmm. And Barb, a.k.a. Tangier14, says, I think episode two will be too soon for re reuniting. I'll go with episode three. Team Ghetto breaks out and meets Anne's BA team. Mm. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, so it seems like the consensus is that Anne's team will meet up with someone, whether it be Matt yes. or Tom. I like that. It, it would seem that they would put off the Aunt and Lexi uh, reunion a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. I think Anne's group has the most possibility of. Because they're on the move. They're because, not trapped right. in someplace. Right. So it just depends on maybe which thread they pick up next. You know, I, I made the theory that they. Uh, follow one of the trucks carrying the children back to Matt, but it's just as likely that Cochise finds Anne and brings him, brings her to Tom to help break Tom out. So, right. you know, I can see both happening. Yeah. Well, good stuff. But we won't know for another couple of days. Yes, we'll find out soon. Well, we want to hear your thoughts. We will be sending out a Berserker Cast Twitter poll question of the week every week. So follow us on Twitter at GSM Podcasts. We will send out the question on Monday mornings and we'll tweet it all the way, you know, all throughout Monday and Tuesday. And just reply with the hashtag BC Twit, you know, Berserker Cast Twit. And we'll include your response on the podcast. We record the podcast live every Tuesday 
at 8 p.m. Eastern time. You can join us for the live show by visiting goldenspiralmedia.com slash live. The webcam's on. The chat room is open. You can come in and chat with us and other Falling Skies fans as we do the podcast live. And if you want to be like Mark and Barb, we just got the two feedbackers this week, but we'd love to have your feedback for next week's episode. You can send us your feedback, your thoughts on the episode by going to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. You can also call us on the Golden Spiral Media voice feedback line. That number is 304-837-2278. The deadline for submitting your feedback is 6 p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays. Yeah, and uh, Golden Spiral Media has just in the last week or two launched four or five new podcasts. Including this one, four. We have one, four. Uh, We have Extant, which hasn't started yet. That's the new CBS sci-fi show starring Halle Berry. And who else is in that? Cameron Mannheim is in that. A few other folks. Uh, Steven Spielberg is behind that show as well. Oh, all right. Yeah, and then uh, Arrow Squad, which came from TV Talk. Mm Mm-hmm. And an Under the Dome podcast, Chester's Mill Gazette, and that makes four. So uh, go to goldenspiralmedia.com and check all those out. Subscribe in iTunes, and I think I just saw a tweet from Stitcher that they're all in Stitcher now, too. So uh, which is where yet. I get Extant and Under the Dome are not there yet because we haven't released those first okay. episodes yet, but they will be as oh, soon got as it. the episode. So it must have been Arrow Squad that I saw in iTunes. So yeah, check them out. Go to website to get more details. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Berserker Cast. We cannot wait for season four, episode two of Falling Skies. I hope that you'll tune in and then tune in for the podcast as well. And until next time, I want to remind you that resistance is never futile. It's easy getting carried away with aliens.